0: Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now.
1: Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life?
0: Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them.
1: A little bit later in this episode of This Pathological Life, we have a special guest. We have a Nobel laureate, Professor Barry Marshall. He'll be here to talk about Heliobacter pylori. Dr. Travis Brown, how was that pronunciation? You've been giving me grief so far.
0: (laughs) Oh, don't worry. I'll give myself grief in this one. There's uh, lots of names that uh, I'll have trouble with, uh, so I'll apologise ahead of time for that. But yeah, yeah.
1: so uh, Barry will be here because he was part of that team that discovered that the ulcers that many of us suffer from or had in the past
0: were bacteria
1: based, not just acid and stress and whatnot. So he'll uncover that story in just a little while. Mm. But first, a little bit of background, a bit of history. Where does this story begin?
0: This story for us begins uh, 5,300 years ago. Uh, this is the uh, story of Utzi, the Iceman. So this was a, a glacial mummy accidentally found in 1991 from some German hikers in the Alps. Uh, they came across this body that was sticking out of the ice uh, and ended up dating, and it was 5,300 years old. Dating back to the early Copper Age, there was over 400 artefacts with Utsi. Uh, he had you know, over 50 tattoos from head to bottom that were created by little cuts in the skin, and they would rub in you know, charcoal uh, to get the, the tattoo happening. Uh, he was, uh, actually turned out to be a murder mystery. He ended up dying, Uh, he had a defensive wound on his right hand. Uh, That histological examination showed it was about three to eight days before his death, so the healing. Can I just interrupt?
1: Hmm. Tattoos... And violence. Was he one of the first bikies in history? <laughs>
0: he might have been, but I don't know what they would have... That Maybe he was run-of-the-mill, or maybe he was a scary character. You don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, found in the Alps, high in the Alps, and, and then we've got these, you know, defensive wounds, so you never know.
1: And just as a note, I'm going to tell my girls, the reason you're not getting a tattoo is look how long they can last.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they can. They last a long time. Uh, so he had this defensive wound on his right hand. Uh, he had an arrowhead stuck in his... Uh, left shoulder uh, that would have hit his subclavian uh, artery and most likely would have bled out to death. Not only that, he had a head injury with bruising on the brain. So clearly, even when someone came up to sh- pull out the shaft, because there was only the arrow head lodged in his shoulder, they clearly decided to finish the job and hit his head with a stone or he fell on his head. Either way, uh, this was a uh, Mysterious circumstances. Mm-hmm. So with all of that, we, we do know that he had a, a large meal about an hour or two before he ended up uh, being killed.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And we were able to find out that this large meal was made of fat and meat uh, and some uh, vegetable matter. But what we also found was Helicobacter pylori. So they ended up doing 12 biopsies on him. Now, all the lining was degenerate, but they found evidence of inflammation, and they found evidence of this organism. Now, it turns out that Helicobacter is actually very ancient. It's 50,000 to 100,000 years old. Mm. And because it's evolved with humans, we can trace it as migration patterns of humans. Now, UTSI's turns out to come out from Asia, which meant that the current version of helicobacter in Europe, which is derived from two different sources, doesn't have the African source in it. And so they've been able to map the patterns with UTSI, which is incredible. We also found out that he had evidence of cardiovascular disease, gallstones, probably Lyme disease, and, and gum disease. So this was an incredible find, but helico was quite remarkable that it was that extended When we realize that helico is the most common cause of peptic ulcer disease, and peptic ulcer means gastric or or duodenal ulcer and covers them both, we find that if we look in history, they didn't have an understanding of ulcer, as we do now. But the search for ulcer disease that they found is the search for helicobacter because it's the main cause for it. So when we look at this, we do find there's evidence of gastrointestinal disease and ulceration, uh, all the way back to the Eber papyrus. You know, Hippocrates has the, the statement that all disease begins in the gut. Now, that's not relevant to ulcers specifically, but that's the philosophy that everything you eat will cause the disease or your healthiness. Mm-hmm. And so we even have uh, celsus in 30 CE in De, De medicina, who mentioned gastric ulceration uh, and, and how it should be managed? But if ulceration attack the stomach, milk and glutinous foods are given,
1: but not to satiety. All acrid and acid things are withheld.
0: What we're finding then is during this time that they do know about some of the symptoms. So we're talking about hematemesis and melina. So hematemesis is people vomiting up uh, what they what we say is coffee ground-like substance. And that's sort of acid, uh, the blood that's been exposed to acid forms this sort of congealed coffee ground material. And if you vomit that up, that's a symptom. We call it yeah, hematemesis, so blood vomit. Uh, we also have the other symptom, which is it goes down through the other path, and we call that melina, um, which is a very offensive, dark, tarry stool. So it's bowel motion. Mm. Uh, so They did know this, they did recognize this, but it's not until the 15th and 16th century when human dissection and autopsies became widespread that we realized that it started to be noticed but explained away. So in John Hunter in the 16th century, he started doing autopsies, but he thought that when he started an autopsy the stomach would automatic, automatically continue to digest, therefore auto-digest. Therefore, it was normal to find stomach contents in the abdomen spilled out because the, the stomach clearly would just you know, auto-digest. Hmm. Uh, this played out with H- Princess Henriette of England, who's 26, uh, Duchess of Orleans, and was married to Philip I, uh, Duke of Orleans, and was sister-in-law to Louis XIV. Now, she was 26 at the time. She was 23 and had tummy pains or abdominal problems that had been recorded. But one time, what happened was she ended up having a large meal and waking up and then clutching her side in pain. She went to bed. The doctors diagnosed her with colic, reassured her that she'll be fine. They prescribed carbim. Carbim- <laughs> Come on, you can do this, Travis. If you make me say these things, you have to say them too. So they prescribed carminative, which is meant to help get rid of gas. They also prescribed purgatives, so vomiting and laxatives. But this only made things worse. And from the time that she had the symptoms clutching the side till eight, eight hours later, she died. Now, there was a lot of suspicion about poisoning and Louis, King Louis ordered an autopsy at the time.
1: Fetid gas escaped when the abdomen was opened. The omentum was gangrenous. The intestines discoloured. The peritoneal cavity contained a large quantity of oily fluid, but in contrast with the intestines, the stomach was normal, save for a small hole anteriorly near the lesser curvature due to the inadvertence of the surgeon who cut it.
0: So they diagnosed uh, Henriette with cholera morbus. So this was a, a gastrointestinal illness was characterized by cramps, diarrhea, and vomiting. It wasn't until 200 years later when they reviewed it that they thought the oil in the peritoneal cavity was actually the medicine that they had given, and the hole wasn't created by the surgeon. It was an ulcer. So... All the way through the 1700s, they're starting to notice these ulcers more in the dissections that they're doing, gastrointestinal and duodenal. Now, no one really knows the significance, but they're starting to report them. In 1793, we have Jacobo Panada of Padua, who had the a butcher of the city, who was a large man, and his symptoms was he presented with pain that was peri and was increased after every meal. There was no vomiting and it subsided after an hour. Now, the patient believed this was caused by flatulence of the intestine tubes, so excess gas, and started to treat himself with copious amounts of alcohol. The patient's symptoms progressed to worse and eventually one time he had pain that was so bad he collapsed and there was a description of his presenting symptoms at the time. His pulse was feeble but irregular, but there was no trace of
1: fever. His face was pale and pinched. The eyes were sunken in and the extremities were cold to touch. The muscles of the abdomen were tense and he was doubled up. From hour to hour, our patient grew worse. And at sunset, he died.
0: So this case attracted the interest of all the surrounding physicians and they attended the post-mortem. The peritoneal cavity was full of fluid.
1: The stomach appeared normal, but that which formed the special interest of the present case and the subject of our discourse was in the duodenum, a peculiar morbid ulcer which was of considerable thickness, hard, indurated
0: and surrounded by multiple small ulcers extending onto the posterior duodenal wall. That takes us into the 18th to 19th century. We've got Matthew Bailey who describes symptoms of Uh, gastric ulcers and even publishes some drawings uh, at the time. And then in 1828, we have Abercrombie of Edinburgh who recognised the symptoms of duodenal ulceration. We start to find out that as people starting to do autopsies, they're starting to realise how common these are. Uh, There is some prevailing theories at the time that they were rare, but as the studies come through we start getting evidence that you know about 5% of the population had a gastric ulcer at some point in time. Half of these healed spontaneously. In the 20th century, they end up doing studies about 4,000 autopsies by Hurst and Stewart, and they found they had active gastric ulcers in 2.2% of, of patients and duodenal ulcers in 3.8% of ulcers. 10% of people had evidence of healed, healed scars from ulcers. So you're starting to see that there is more and more evidence of these ulcers. But there is a really good article from J. Donaldson Craig in 1948 that goes through all the history. But there's still a prevailing theory at the time that gastric ulcer and duodenal ulcer were separated, were different. And this was all caused by acid in the stomach. And that brings us to the 1980s, where we have Dr. Robin Warren and Professor Barry Marshall, who began their study. A medical revolution was coming, but it wasn't going to be an easy fight for them.
1: On the line with us from Perth, we have Professor Barry Marshall, Nobel Prize Laureate in Physiology or Medicine, Professor of Clinical Microbiology, University of Western Australia. Back in the 80s, my father went to hospital to have his ulcers operated on, only to learn that six months later, he didn't need to have done that. He could have had a course of some tablets and everything would have been solved. And one of the men responsible for that is Professor Barry Marshall, who is now joining us here on This Pathological Life.
0: Welcome to our show.
3: Thanks very much. great to be here.
0: And I'm sure you'll be able to enlighten us as to what the prevailing belief was at the time with the, the ulcers. And before you started the study, what was the most common cause for ulcers?
3: Well, ulcers were, you know, they used to say no acid, no ulcer. So anything that raised acid would probably be implicated as causing ulcers. And the thing that they knew of, well, thought they knew of, was stress. So uh, there you go. Stress raises stomach acid, causes ulcers. And uh, for doctors, it's a good diagnosis because you can never cure a person from stress. <laughs> Everybody gets stress, So that explains why you have ulcers all your life. <laughs> and <laughs> people had so-called ulcer personalities, you know, a whole mythology all around it some beautiful stories related to why they thought that. but uh, The underlying thing is a weakness in the medical profession is if ever we can't understand something, we always blame it on the patient. We say it's caused by stress. And then that puts the blame on the patient and not on the doctor for not being able to make a proper diagnosis.
0: Right. So how did the, the study come about?
3: There's quite a good system with the College of Physicians. So trainees in Australia set the uh, college a physician's exam once you pass that you then uh do three years in training posts and in western australia each year you're supposed to do some kind of research project and could be anything but there's some clinical research re- arising from a patient that you've seen that's interesting so as part of my clinical research in 1981 and i was on gastroenterology um, i met up with dr warren who had seen some bacteria in the stomach and i thought well that's interesting because i can't find any mention of these bacteria in the uh, pathology books or gastroenterology books so you know that's weird where are they from is it just one or two patients and so we we then uh went from strength to strength trying to find out who had the bacteria uh we could see them under the microscope or we could see them under uh, on dr warren's biopsy samples and he could show me that the um, white cells seemed to be gathering around where the bacteria were located on the stomach surface. And uh, also, when I did some gram stains, like took some mucus smears and stained them with the gram stain things, I could see that these polymorphs uh, that were inside the, the mucus layer in the stomach uh, had ingested the bacteria. So it did really seem like your body was trying to get rid of them. They were being phagocytosed. There's a number of things like that that got me pretty interested. And we said, well, let's try and uh, culture these things because, you know, the stomach is supposed to be sterile. All the textbooks say so, so nobody ever looks in the stomach for bacteria. And uh, so gastroenterologists always thought the stomach was sterile. It was acid in there. It looked really clean. You know, we did an endoscopy and ulcers always had a nice clean white base. You know, it didn't look pussy or anything. But, uh, you know, we had turned out to show that, uh, in fact, there were all kinds of parallel things going on in the stomach of ulcer patients, and uh, it was going to really turn gastroenterology and ulcer uh, theory on its head. So uh, maybe, maybe we didn't think that straight away, but we were pretty interested in the link between the bacteria and the inflammation. And it's quite easy to then say, well, you know, this could explain a lot because it's not so much that acid is the primary problem, it's that these bacteria are damaging the wall of the stomach, so it can't withstand even normal types of acid, normal amounts of acid. So that's the theory we started off with, and, and and went with that.
1: Can we just pause the story for one moment? Because I'm very curious to know. Science mm. history is is dotted with these people who have gone beyond where the orthodoxy was. When you're at the cusp of this and seeing things that aren't marrying with conventional wisdom, is there self doubt? What, what, existentially, what is happening to you in your own uh, journey of development when you're faced with this data?
3: So, well, we did actually go around, about, uh, go about it quite scientifically. So, we started off okay, well, let's study the bacteria try and figure out how they survive in the acid and uh, and then we'll publish something about you know in microbiology so that's what we're thinking and Warren said to me well don't go biopsying near ulcers because there's all kinds of inflammation and there's healing process etc and so there's just a confused pathologic picture said so take biopsies away from the ulcers five centimeters away and we'll see what the rest of the stomach is like so that was how we started and and then we were not focused on ulcers, in fact. And it was only a year, about a year later that we'd, we'd bring all the data together uh, that, that we could see this crystal clear association with ulcers. So when we started off, it was a scientific question. We're gradually gathering data and reading around, you know, what, what's in the stomach, what's the pathology of gastritis, and pulling in uh, all kinds of literature from 100 different places and different times over the previous century actually of things living in the stomach and so then when we got this association between the bacteria and ulcers we said well hang on a minute you know we've got all these diverse bits of information they are all pointing towards the fact that these bacteria might be the cause of ulcers so it wasn't like we we had an idea, and we sort set out to prove it. It was really a couple of years later, after working on these bacteria, that we started to think, you know, hey, you know, could this really be true? that it causing the ulcers? You know, so then you talk about self doubt. Well, it's just so incredible, and not only that. It's practically the most common infection on Earth. <laughs> most of the human race is infected with it. It's like, you know, that would really blow you away. So, okay, we can't just believe it. We have to, we really have to do some work on this and check out these facts every different way. And so we sent out, uh, you know, we were trying to do animal experiments, experiments. Uh, We were trying, we were treating a few people with different antibiotics. Tetracycline was one. Bismuth. Every time we got an idea and wanted to test a hypothesis, we'd always keep coming back, getting the answer: yes, you could be right. And so, for example, was um, at that point a lot of people used to take bismuth or stuff called denol. It was a horrible medicine, but. It was actually quite good at curing ulcers, and it had no effect on acid, you see. So it wasn't an acid blocker. So you could heal ulcers with something else besides acid blocker. And I remembered that I'd read somewhere that bismuth used to be used to treat syphilis, like arsenic, mercury, heavy metals, kill bacteria. So I said, you know, this bismuth... It's probably an antibiotic or something. So, mm-hmm. we did some in vitro tests in 1983. And, you know, that was the day that I became very enthusiastic as, as yes. the bacteria, to say the bacteria were the cause of ulcers. So, there was this zone of inhibition around bismuth, and the MIC for it was something like 12 micrograms per mm-hmm. mil. And when you take oral bismuth, you're putting thousands of micrograms per mil into your stomach mucosa. So that seemed to fit. (laughs) And uh, so then, okay, well, what about antibiotics? But as the years went by, I was thinking, you know, this is really too good to be true. You know, it would be so incredible if this was true. I've got to keep testing it. So, I eventually got funded by NHMRC to do a double blind study with antibiotics versus placebo. And I said, until I know the result of this study, I can't say that that, uh, the bacteria are the cause. I hate doing clinical trials where you're double blind, you don't know what the answer is for three years. (laughs) And so, you've just got to suffer. And everyone says, oh, you know. Dr. Marshall, he he was such a promising researcher. He hasn't published a single thing for the last <laughs> few years. What's happening? And, you know, you just have to wait and uh, keep your fingers crossed. So, uh, yeah, I was like that, you know, until uh, I was so meticulous about the double-blindedness. I was saying to the patients, listen, if you see me in the street, cross the street. Don't <laughs> even look at me because I don't want to find out <laughs> I know that you'll blab and tell me that you're feeling better or you were taking the funny tablets or something. So so it was really very stringent uh, about how we did it. And, of course, the blindedness was also, uh, as well as being double-blind as to the treatment and whether or not the patient felt better, I was also blinded to the histology. So I didn't know whether the bugs were there or not on the person. And when I did an endoscopy, I knew nothing about the person. They would put the person in the endoscopy room and I would um, look down to see if the ulcer had come back after they stopped their treatment. And uh, I would take a photo so that, you know, in order to, I could bring out all the photos. So it was incredibly stringent. And uh, lo and behold, 90% of the people who had antibiotic and got H. Uh, or eradicated never got their ulcer back. Wow. This is 90%. in the other group did get the back as soon as they stopped taking Tagamet or whatever it was we gave them. So for three years, I had to just suffer.
1: How many people were in that
3: study? There were 100 people. And they were so keen to be in my study that um, <laughs> they, I had like 99% compliance in that study. Let's look, follow up for a year. And uh, it was one... so. He was a cook uh, in the Northwest on fly-in and fly-out. And um, that used to be a great racket. If you're in my trial, you would get a free air ticket back to Perth every three months (laughs) and an endoscopy, you see, and so so that you didn't have to pay your travel. Uh, So he was in that, but he did not turn up for his endoscopy. He's feeling fine after he had the blind treatment. We didn't know what what he'd had. And he didn't come back for his follow-up endoscopy. So I was, like, trying to get in touch with him. You've got to come back. I've you know, got to follow up. Anyway, the next minute, the flying doctor brings him down with a bleeding ulcer. And oh. he gets admitted to Royal Hospital and just about... Uh, and then he has a heart attack. He's with low blood pressure, so he's a myocardial infarction. He's a guy about 45. He's oh. a cook. And then, uh, has a, <laughs> and finally, uh, a month or two later after his myocardial infarction has healed up a bit and we can do an endoscopy on him, uh, I do the scope and he still got the helicobacter. So he was a relapse, even though we didn't get the endoscopy, we still kept him in the study because he relapsed. He still had the bugs. Yeah. So whenever I had a patient after that, I said, well, you know, there was one patient who didn't come back to follow up and guess what happened to him? <laughs> Ulcer relapse, bleeding, flying doctor and a heart attack. So... Yeah. I just warn you, you need to come and see me after you've been in the study for a few months. Yeah. So we didn't have any more dropouts after I told them all that story.
0: That's really encouraging results for the study. What was the prevailing attitude towards this study whilst you were doing it? I mean, clearly three, three years where you're going through, it's quite interesting and you're getting at least some encouraging results that something's happening. But the medical fraternity at this time... What was their attitude? Was were they encouraging or not? Or what was that like?
3: Well, it it was it wasn't respectable to talk about Helicobacter. I I thought after that study it would just be proven, but um, yeah, people still couldn't believe it. And from America, you're saying, "Well, this person who's never published before is going to publish is publishing this double blind study <laughs> and using drugs that we we don't have." And, you know, obviously they're fudging their results, they're opening their envelopes and <laughs> the patients are telling them stuff. Yeah, so, so it's not really double blind. So, uh, therefore, you know, we couldn't get it published in the New England Journal. It was published in the Lancet because by then a few people in England and Europe where they did also have business available could actually, you know, validate some of our study. So it was published in the Lancet, which is quite good, you know, mm. just as many millions of people mm. read the Lancet. Mm. But it wasn't until it could be duplicated in the United States in a good double-blind way with drugs that they had available, then they could publish it. Otherwise, you know, you, in America, it might have gone crazy. You would have hundreds of ulcer patients all over the place, writing to their congressmen and <laughs> writing in front of the house demanding Dino. It could have gone a bit crazy. There were issues like that that slowed it down, and probably because it was such an important discovery uh, that it was important to do it absolutely by a book, and mm. the drug companies didn't have any stake in it, so you didn't act. And it wasn't like you had AstraZeneca uh, behind you promoting it and, and driving it forward and, and, and funding it, etc. Mm. It was pretty much uh, do it off the smell of an oily rag using generic drugs. Mm. And uh, nobody was going to make too much money out of it. So there wasn't a normal new drug discovery. So your volunteering,
0: uh, let's say, uh, of you taking actually uh, Uh some of the dose is well documented. But can you take us through the thought process? Because clearly the study was encouraging. You even got it published in The Lancet. What took you to that next step?
3: You mean the self-experiment? That's right, yes. Yes. 1983, I treated a few people. Uh, Warren and I were at different hospitals then. We used to communicate, but I actually had a different uh, pathologist, uh, a guy called Ross Glancy. He's probably retired now. I've seen him for a few years. But And uh, David Nadecki was a microbiologist who's very good on campylobacter. So I was at Fremantle Hospital, and although it's not the top hospital in WA uh, in those days, um, it was very good. They had really top pathology and microbiology. So I ended up with a bit of luck being in the right place. I decided I'd do an MD thesis, and I submitted an MD thesis where, you know, we going to follow up these bacteria, or they might cause ulcers, et cetera, and we're going to do animal studies and try and fulfill Koch's postulate. So, Koch, Robert Koch, in 1884, um, uh, published this, Thing with tuberculosis, he said, to prove tuberculosis is actually a pathogen causing all this disease, yeah. I put it into guinea pigs and then they developed tuberculosis and died. And when we looked at the lesions, we could get the tuberculosis bacteria back out and we could prove that that was the cause. So that was Cox postulates. And yeah. um, so at that time, you had to do that with uh, the Helicobacter, the new bacteria. And I wrote an experiment up where I was going to try and infect piglets. And uh, so the first half of of, of 1984, I was down there every second week doing endoscopies on these piglets. And if we couldn't find anything, we'd feed them different strains of Helicobacter every week. (laughs) And then I'd do the endoscopy. And again and again, I couldn't find any Helicobacter surviving in their stomach. So it was a frustrating experiment and the, the, the piglets grew bigger and bigger and they always knew when it was endoscopy day because they didn't get any breakfast and they'd be cranky and I'd have to rest, wrestle these stinky pigs and they were about 100 pounds at least backstage and it was getting harder. Uh, the experiment was a complete failure. Uh, ultimately somebody did infect germ-free piglets but normal piglets are so covered in filth and are so resistant to bacteria if they, if they survive to adulthood, <laughs> that the helicobacter just doesn't affect them, doesn't get in there. Right. Anyway, so uh, in desperation, I, I gave grand rounds and showed them these results. And I showed, the, showed some results where we healed gastritis by treating people with bismuth and, and suppressing the bacteria for a couple of months. So I had ulcer patients taking that treatment and I scoped them and we did biopsies at Fremantle Hospital before and during and after the treatment. We showed that the helicobacter disappeared and then it came back in most people. But while it was going disappearing, the information, the polymorphs, disappeared. And mm. so I read those biopsies, blinded and, and presented the, the data as an abstract. But, you know, of course it came back again. Someone at Royal Perth Hospital, no, Fremantle Hospital Grand Round said to me, he's a pathologist actually. He, it, he said, Well, Barry, these are very subtle findings. <laughs> and I was like, Subtle? You know, it's the first time in the world anyone has ever healed gastritis. Don't you know that? You know, I used to go crazy with these comments. And I thought, Oh, well, there's only one thing I've got to infect the human. Until that's done. I won't really know. So, again, there's this self-doubt, you know. So at that point, I was like, am I going to go into internal medicine oh. and drop this? It's a lot of work. It's going on for years. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> or am I going to see if I can infect the human? Because the guinea pigs were a total failure, rabbits, rats, mice, pigs. So I, I need to move on with my life. And so I said, well, I think I won't tell any of my bosses, I won't ask permission, I'll just do it. And so I had an endoscopy. My friend, Ross, Dr. Hislop, he did the endoscopy on me one morning at the beginning of the endoscopy session and no anaesthetic because I had about 10 other patients so I had to endoscope straight after that. So I had my own endoscopy and then do a whole session. And so then a couple of weeks later when we knew that my stomach was totally normal, Mm -hmm. drank some helicobacter, and then, then I was very conscious of the fact that it's not blinded. It's very subjective. You're doing it on yourself. Mm. And so that is totally unscientific. And I knew, I knew that I would be the laughing stock of the gastroenterology community because at that point, they were all trying to be super double blind. And you couldn't do any kind of of research unless you had 200 patients in each group because mm. they were trying to say is Tagamet as good as Zantac, you know, those kinds of things, trying to find small differences. Whereas Robin and I, we were thinking about we're going to have 100% in one group and zero in the other group. So you're not going to need too many statisticians to work it out if we're <laughs> right. Um, so we were pressing on. And um, anyway, so I felt like I wasn't digesting my food. I, one night we had Chinese and I couldn't finish it, which is totally un- unnatural for me. You know, if you put Chinese in front of me, I'll eat every bit. So I, I couldn't finish the Chinese meal, and I was taking sips of water. And then I started wake up in, waking up in the morning and vomiting this clear liquid. So you say, oh, well, that must be acid coming out. There's no acid in the vomit. It was just clear liquid, and uh, I was feeling a bit nauseated. At that point, people told me in retrospect that I had a bad breath all that week. My mother told me that. My wife told me that. I had no friends. I was sleeping well. I was breaking out of sweats. You know, so I feel like this is my patients have all got <laughs> they're all like this, and it was called the ulcer personality or the overworked or something. And you know, it was just like you were just working too hard and a bit tired. So it was in some ways it was subtle, but there were some objective signs. I said, so finally, I had the endoscopy on day 10, and my stomach was absolutely full of helicobacter, and uh, mm-hmm. we had some nice biopsies and we got the cultures and everything and then uh, got some EMs back and then after two weeks I'm pretty sure it was a spontaneous disappearance but mm. my wife insisted that I start taking antibiotics on that day anyway <laughs> even before I saw a histologist. She said you're going to go and live in an apartment or on the street. You're not staying in the house. <laughs> you're all living vomiting and halitosis. It's disgusting. <laughs> So at that point, she was quite paranoid. She thought all the kids were getting infected. Every, so in the next five years, anyone in the family had any kind of GI upset. They would insist on having an endoscopy at a <laughs> <laughs> to see if they had helicobacter from my experiment. <laughs> so no, there, there, there were practical issues there that made it more difficult. So anyway, so um, then I had the, the helicobacter there, and then it was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, that same year, where we I was developing serology, I was treating patients with different treatments. And so, by the end of that year, uh, which I guess was so that was July '84. After six months, it was published suddenly in the Lancet. They never tell you, so you just find out that it's been published. And uh, so we got the Lancet, uh, and it was all great. Dr. Warren and I went out to dinner with our wives, etc. That was lovely. And uh, but then I got a phone call from Medical Journal of Australia editor. He said, "Barry, oh, we're so disappointed that you didn't put your nice paper into the Medical <laughs> Journal of Australia, it's unpatriotic of you or something." <laughs> and I said, "Well, hang on a minute. Last this year, my paper was re- well last year was totally rejected by the Gastroenterology Society. It wasn't even given a poster." And and. Uh, so, we don't have any loyalty in Australia. We've got a lot of loyal ma- mates now in Europe. And he said, oh, well, look, if you have any other papers, you know, give me a call and I'll make sure it gets published. I spoke to my boss and he said, well, okay, well, let's write up two papers, one about the microbiology and the other one could be your self-experiment as a hypothesis that these bacteria could cause ulcers. So actually I spent my whole holiday, it must have been August, September for, you know, Five weeks or something, working on these two papers, submitted them to the Medical Journal of Australia. And like all editors, he was an absolute traitor. When I submitted them, he got them reviewed to the nth degree. And there were so many revisions that were necessary. It took me another two months to get the things rewritten. Of course, I wasn't very good at writing papers in those days. (laughs) But eventually, you know, got submitted. And they got published in April, I think, you know, April 3rd. Eight, 1985 and by then I'd also been funded by NHMRC to do the double blind study. So, but the great thing was that uh, because of my European connections then, because I had been to a European cancer back meeting, people who knew about bismuth and were doing research on it started contacting me and one of these was the head microbiologist at Procter & Gamble. Now I didn't know much about Procter & Gamble but you know Ten years ago, they paid twenty-five billion dollars and bought Gillette. So it's like, a, as far as personal care, shampoo, soap, and everything, that's like Apple is for computers. So Procter and Gamble uh, top microbiologist called me up one day at the end of 1994 and said, uh, Barry, can you come and tell us about these bacteria and the fact that our product, which we just thought was soothing the stomach, turns out it's got Bismuth in it. We call it Pepto Bismol. And according to what you were telling someone, it's going to to be the new thing for ulcers. It's going to kill the hypobacteria. And I said, Oh, well, I could maybe. I'm so busy. I could perhaps come next year sometime. And they said, Oh, no, we want you to come now. And I said, Well, it's only the 7th of December. I've got Christmas coming up. It's a pretty busy time in my family. And they said, Oh, well, you know, get on a plane. We've got a ticket for you on Saturday you just need to come over for a week. And so next minute, I was on a plane and did a, a mini-lecture tour through the United States. I went to Stanford and Dallas, Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. I did a sort of mini-lecture tour around the country and then came back after seven days. I didn't realize, I didn't know who I was talking to, but they all hated the idea of bacteria-causing ulcers because these were the, the top ulcer researchers in the world. In, in uh, California, and Dallas, there was the acid mafia. Yeah. When they had been studying acid and H two blockers and everything, and were you know making a living out of out of it for twenty years, and then I came in and say, "Oh, oh sorry guys, all that is wasted. Uh, it's bacteria." You know, so they, they weren't very really receptive. <laughs> but I was pretty naive in those days. I used to just charge in like bull in a china shop. Anyway, it got me a job and a scholarship in the United States. So, at that point, things kind of went crazy for the next twenty years. Really, you could not have stopped it. Too many Mm -hmm. people knew about it at that stage. Mm -hmm. I had a lot more fun doing it than (laughs) people. I know one of your questions is, you know, what was it like to win the Nobel Prize? But having all that excitement and and the discovery process and the trials and the in vitro lab work, etc., that was just. Over the top, Mm. and so the Nobel Prize was great, but it was—it's not like it was nothing, nothing. And then the Nobel Prize—it was just another climax, I suppose.
0: Did you anticipate the amount of diseases associated with Helicobacter pylori? Like gastric carcinoma and multiple lymphoma, did you did you anticipate that this was a path that it was going down, or did you? It was it beyond your expectations.
3: That helped us win the Nobel Prize because we twigged that it was the cause of, of stomach cancer, and mm. the reason was we we did so much reading of the literature about gastritis. We found all this literature that every patient with stomach cancer had gastritis and in Estonia and different places where they nearly all had helicobacter behind the Iron Curtain you know the water wasn't clean and so any all the communist countries were just so infected with helicobacter and had very high stomach cancer rates but they had data where they had looked at so-called normal volunteers with gastritis and shown that over many years they got metaplasia in the stomach and you know if you watch them long enough some of them got stomach cancer but People without gastritis, there was no people with with normal stomach who got stomach cancer. So all people with stomach cancer have gastritis. And then we looked at all our data and Dr. Warren's data. We could not find any people with stomach uh, with gastritis who did not have the bacteria. So mm-hmm. as far in Western Australia, as far as we can tell. There was only one thing that could get that kind of gastritis. And it was the helicobacter. So A plus B must equal stomach cancer. And we mentioned this in our letters to the Lancet. People who were studying stomach cancer around the world started checking up on this. And so three or four years later, they said, looks like helicobacter causes stomach cancer.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And so uh, then you looked at that literature with a new, new eyes, if you like, Mm. You say, it must be true. Turns out that that's like number two stomach cancer in the world. It's mm. dropping down a bit now as we've got the helicobacter under control. Mm. But it used to be number one cancer in America in 1930s. So mm. that's what the Mayo Clinic, when it started, those two surgeons doing nothing but stomach cancer and GI problems. So in those days, stomach cancer was the number one cancer. It started to decline a bit. Which was related to a number of different things: refrigeration, better food, plus decline of Helicobacter. The interest now is that half the people in the world still have Helicobacter, but those people are all in China and Africa, um, South America, like that. So they'll be the, the next um, billion people who get treated for Helicobacter or to just wait and it will sure. mm. So the research now is chasing cheap diagnosis for millions of people and easy way of screening for stomach cancer risk. Finally,
0: just on your current research projects with the the Marshall Centre. Where has your gaze taken you to at the moment now with with research?
3: It's something I've been interested in, immunisation and uh, the idea we've been working on for quite a few years now is the idea that if you have helicobacter in your stomach, you do make antibodies against it. It's theoretically possible to have vaccines that means that you just swallow. And so there there may be some tricks to it, um, but Helicobacter, at least, has some kind of trick that uh, triggers, tickles up the immune system and you make antibodies against helicobacter. So if we could learn this trick, you might be able to make uh, COVID vaccines, which you just swallow, eat them like a a probiotic or yogurt or something. And if you could do that, well, then you could just have your COVID vaccines in the supermarket, What food. Wow. And then if if you knew how to make it, quickly, if you had a, a like a GMO organism making your COVID vaccines, then you could make a new one every month or every three months. And once you could do that, then you could track all kinds of COVID, including the common cold. So my my thing is, I'm going to use what we learned for, from COVID-19, and I want to put surveillance in place so that we, when your kid gets a, a runny nose down at the kindergarten or the daycare, we immediately do a COVID-style swab on the kid, deep sequencing, find out exactly what the sequence of that virus is. A week later, we've got it in the machine making the quick COVID oral vaccine, and then you'll see it on the news. Oh, yeah, there's a new strain of uh, <laughs> common cold going around. According to this. It's it's down at uh, South Fremantle Daycare, and it's come from this cruise ship. And don't worry, um, you're going to have a vaccine available in Coles next week and you'll choose the strawberry flavoured vaccine the lime flavoured vaccine is going to be obsolete so I can assure you 20 years from now people will just be saying you know that's how vaccines are but I don't think we're going to be racing around taking um, intramuscular um, boosters and things like that in the future. Nobody has actually sat down and told me how many billions it costs the country for all adults in the country to take a week off work each year because they have got a cult, me included.
2: Mm. Um,
3: So that's billions. So that's where we want to be. And I predict there are probably lots of other things we'll find out are related to that in some way.
1: Professor Barry Marshall, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. Fun talking to you guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow, it was such a privilege to have Professor Barry Marshall with us. But, Travis, there's just a few loose ends we need to tie up on this topic, isn't there?
0: There is, there is. So, looking at Helicobacter, look, the organism, it's just, let's understand it a little bit more and, and let's see, what, what is our knowledge currently at the moment? And, look, uh, Helicobacter pylori is a gram-negative organism that lives in our, lives in stomachs. It's evolved in that area. It's able to live in the acid. And, in fact, if we take away the acid... It has trouble surviving. That's why when drugs we take reduce acid, the amount that are there are less. So that reduces the sensitivity for testing at the time. (laughs) So it is, look, a gram-negative rod uh, that is described as curved, and it forms a protective layer around itself. So we we often look, it has an enzyme in it called urease, where it cleaves urea to ammonium and then it coats itself in that ammonia which keeps it alive in a really strong acid environment it also has what we call flagella so it can move about the stomach uh, and a whole bunch of virulence factors which help it survive but cause us injury and so what happens is the organism is able to survive it disrupts the mucous membrane the epithelium or the lining of the stomach is then exposed to acid And it goes through. So it's now recognized as a a type 1 carcinogen, so it can cause cancer. What we know is it's estimated 50% of the world's population has either infection or colonization, depending on which way you look at it. Uh, It's pretty much more an infection because every time it's there, it forms a part of gastritis. So if you have it, it will cause some inflammation. So when we look at the developing world, we know that about 80% of the population is is infected by the age of 20. And then when we look at the Western world, we have about 20 to 50% of our population is infected. So in the US and in Australia, we have an average infection rate of about 30% of our population, which is really significant. Uh, It's reducing in the younger ages though. So People around 1950s have a much higher prevalence of this infection, uh, where we have less than 10% of people who are less than 30 years old. It's transmitted, usually in childhood, uh, from oral to oral, so from one family member to the other, or sometimes with contamination, so faecal oral route. Uh, and it's usually associated with uh, poor economic uh, status, and this is with crowding and, uh, and everything we have the clinical features. People may be asymptomatic, but often what they complain of is abdominal pain or uh, a burning discomfort, what we say in the epigastric area. If it's a gastric area, it will tend to be straight after eating. If it's duodenal, it can be anywhere from an hour to two or three hours after they've eaten because that's when the stomach contents en- empty into the duodenum. And again, we talk about hematemesis, melina as something everyone, every clinician has to ask in the ED department or, you know, if there's any symptoms of this, sort of patient. So the symptoms of infection, they will have some form of gastritis. 10% of people who have it will develop a gastric or duodenal ulcer. One to 3% are at risk of gastric adenocarcinoma, so cancer. And less than 0.1% will have an associated uh, malt lymphoma. So that's very rare, but it's the only lymphoma that we can treat with antibiotics and it goes away. So when we look at the complications, we have the main one is gastrointestinal bleeding and 15% of patients will have this. It's a much higher risk in the older patients over 60 years of age. The interesting thing is about 20% of patients will present with a bleeding and not have any previous signs or symptoms. But the the part to note is that it's someone who has a gastrointestinal bleed has a 30-day mortality rate of five to 10%. So it's something to really keep an eye on. The next most common complication is perforation. So six to seven percent of people with peptic ulcer disease will get uh, perforation, and this is where about a mortality rate over the 30 days is 20%. So again, these are starting to become increasingly more dangerous as they go. We have gastric outlet obstruction. Only 1% to 2% of patients get this. But we have gastric cancer. And it's the fourth most common cancer worldwide. It's most common in Japan. And again, the strongest risk factor for this is helicobacter pylori. It accounts for 1.5% of all new cancers. So we get about... 2,200 in Australia. The problem with this is the five-year survival of this cancer is around 31%, and that's because it tends to present late. So it's certainly one of those ones we want to identify early and get treatment early. The testing for helicobacter pylori, so we have a breath test. So someone goes into collection centre, they have a tablet, and then they breathe a little bit later, uh, and we test that to see is there urea, uh, has it been broken down? Uh, we have a fecal test, so someone can do a, a fecal stool test and see if we've got the helicobacter antigen there. There is uh, what we call rapid urease, so when someone has an endoscope, you can take a biopsy and they can put it in and see if ure- urease is in that. Uh, and we also have an antibody test, but that's more for seeing have you had a past exposure to helicobacter pylori. Again, it's important to note that the sensitivity changes, so if someone's already on treatment for it or has what we call proton pump inhibitor, you'll have less helico, therefore we may or may not detect it, so they have to go off that for a while. I think in, in summary, this whole journey, this whole story shows us that the power of an idea or a theory and being able to apply scientific reasoning... Even sometimes when you get to a certain point where you think, oh, I've proven it, sometimes it still takes a while to convince people that, yes, this is really important and a fundamental change, uh, as I say, the importance of persistence. So th- this whole thing with uh, Dr. Robin Warren and Professor Barry Marshall shows us that the importance of persistence, not to be discouraged and they were able to change the entire way we treat uh, gastric and duodenal ulcers these days.
1: This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.